In 2013, John Jackson came home to Georgia for good. He'd been away on and off for 10 years. It was a bit of an adjustment, but John missed his family. His son Titus was growing up, and he wanted to be there for it. One day soon after returning, he overheard Titus bragging to his friends about killing some frogs. It was almost like this bravado thing where it was like, so proud about what he's done. And I I snapped because it was like, you think taking a life is fun. John knew something about taking lives. He was returning home from war. You know, having lived through so much of my friends who have lost their lives because, you know, to me, we were expendable, right? This triggered John's PTSD. He completely lost it. I was screaming at him, and, I mean, he was so scared. You know, my wife was scared, and they saw a side of me that should have only been reserved for, you know, the enemies of our country. So how would John keep his family safe from this dark side of himself? This is Homemade, an original podcast by Rocket Mortgage about the meaning of homes and what we can learn about ourselves in them. I'm Stephanie Fu. In this episode, the soldier who found a way to manage his PTSD by wrangling pigs. A trigger warning for this story, there are mentions of suicidal ideation, PTSD, and combat violence. In 2001, John Jackson was 23. He had a good job at a pharmaceutical company, but then 9-11 happened. John had grown up looking in awe at the World Trade Center directly across the Hudson River from his home in New Jersey. And so this attack, it seemed personal. I didn't grow up in a military family, but uh, when the towers went down, this was a declaration of war. And that that's just a natural reaction from folks to say, okay, you know what, um, I'm going to sacrifice myself for the greater good and, uh, and take the fight back to him. So John joined the Army and found that he liked it. Getting pushed to his limits made him feel something that he didn't get working in a science lab. He became an Army Ranger Staff Sergeant among the U.S. military's most elite soldiers, and he was active duty for 10 years. In that time, he did six tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. One of the biggest dangers to American soldiers was, of course, IEDs, bombs that terrorists buried under roads. Once, John was manning the machine gun in a Humvee, standing halfway out of the roof, when they hit one. You know you're in an explosion when um, you see the, the light flash before you hear the bang. I, I can feel my eyebrows like singeing, you know, and things like that. And everybody on the radio were like freaking out. What the fuck, Jackson? And I was just like, dude, freaking fireball just rolled right over top of me. And all I said was, that's cool, you know? <laughs> you just said that's cool? Yeah, so... I mean, you got to make light of it. You got to have fun with it. Um, If you don't, you'll lose your mind. John hit over 20 IEDs during his six tours. In order to get back in the Humvee and keep driving, he had to dissociate from the danger. Had to just sort of turn down the volume on the fear that otherwise would be screaming in his head. And that wasn't the only thing he had to turn down the volume on. He also had to dissociate from his relationships, his friendships with the guys he served with. And he had to learn that lesson the hard way with one of his friends. We were playing table tennis, man, and um, he went out the next day, got killed. It was like, 
yeah, man, I, we were just hanging out yesterday, and now he's no longer here with us. Within a week, the same thing happened. Another vehicle was destroyed by an IED, killing everyone in it. We definitely had to clean up brain matter, pick up teeth in the vehicle. We couldn't put them back together, but we put that vehicle back together in about 36 hours as kind of like a show of force of what we can do. Mm. And when you move that fast, you move outside of what it, it feels like to be human because we're all machines at that point, right? So it kind of numbed you out? Oh, extremely, yeah. You can't hold on to those friendships because that's something that's going to get you killed. There was no time for emotions. You had to remain objective out there, focus on the mission. John was reminded of this every time he left the base. There was a huge uh, sign outside the gates before we rolled out that said, today could be today. And that was really like a warning shot that said, you, you know, keep you on your toes. Like, once you leave those gates, anything can happen. But John did hold on to one friendship. He met Kyle Comfort on his first day of basic training. They did everything together. Ate in the chow hall, worked out in the garrison. Then they fought side by side. Kyle was John's biggest supporter. You know, we had a pretty good relationship. You know, it was one of those things where in my career, some of the best things that I was able to do, you know, uh, Kyle just happened to be around. He saw something in me that was extremely useful, you know, for the battle. So basically he believed in you. Yeah, yeah. Sadly, Kyle never saw that happen. In Afghanistan in 2010, he was killed by an IED. Back at the landing zone, John pulled his friend's body off the helicopter. But still, there was no time for mourning, only time for the next mission. It would be years before John could properly come to terms with this loss. He remained on the front lines for another two years, numb to the dangers of battle. And then he was given a medical discharge. Like many soldiers who were hit by IEDs, John suffered brain damage from multiple concussions and head traumas. And so he went back home to settle with his wife and son in Georgia. But of course, this was just the beginning of the battle. After leaving active service, John wanted to figure out what was next, move on to a new life and career. But there was that numbness. And I had a hard time. I still have a hard time. Overseas, it's all black and white. Enemy over there, friendlies over there. Mm-hmm. You know, back in society, everyone lives in the gray, which is, I think, more tough because there's so many unknowns. And I survived for a long time, you know, understanding what's right and what's not. And it's not easy to do that back here. Right. Because people aren't evil. They're just nuanced. Y- yeah. I didn't relearn those things coming back into civilian life. Right. There was no um, period for me to kind of settle down and to work on that skill set. I mean, yeah, you'd be an awesome dad if you were in wartime. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'd be great, you know, and um, that's the biggest issue. Your wife and your loved ones and your kids, they need like certain things that uh, I mean, personally, I was just not able to give them, you know. Like what? Uh, Affection, attention, just a willingness to be vulnerable. John's physical wounds didn't help. He suffers from constant ringing in the ears, extreme sensitivity to bright light, memory loss, the occasional seizure, depression, and of course, his PTSD. He'd known he had PTSD for a long time, but it had gone untreated because PTSD is an asset in the field. It keeps you hypervigilant, alert, attentive. It keeps you on your toes. 
I don't call it PTSD. It's just survival, right? But after war, when things start settling down and the dark clouds start catching up to you, then that's when things become a problem. At war, there's constant movement. Go here, do this, clean this, make a list of that. But when all of a sudden everything is still, it's peaceful, hypervigilance isn't helpful anymore. It starts to be a problem. The first time he noticed something was wrong, he was at home preparing dinner, cutting some veggies at the counter, drinking a Corona with lime. His wife came up behind him and snapped a picture. The flash went off, and instantly his body tensed. I kind of turned around, looked at my wife, and she looked at me, and she started laughing. She's like, what? What are you doing? You know, and I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling kind of weird. And this flood of emotion just come and poured out all over me. I had no control. Literally, I had to walk to the shower. I had all my clothes on, and I just stepped in the shower and just cried. I, I have no worries in the world. And just like that, I got put into a situation that triggered a response to me that I could not control. And that was the first time I realized that this is what PTSD is. It's really making me think of the sign that says this could be the day. Yes. And then John overheard Titus bragging about killing the frogs. Another flash. This time, the PTSD was directed outward. And so, like, with my son's nonchalant attitude of, you know, killing these frogs, it also triggers something into me, too, about, like, the value of life and why my children have to, you know, be this way. John snapped, and he immediately felt like a danger to his family. You got combat veterans who their job is to kill the monsters. And there's no more noble act when you yourself have become the monster and you need to save your family from yourself. That was the most significant part of why I wanted to take my life. John walked away from his son and wife and sat in his bedroom, cradling a gun in his hands. And he seriously thought about ending it all right then. I think a lot of vets kind of go through that, those last moments before they end up taking their life. When I was in that moment, I finally found that peace that I would be doing something that was good. But of course, John wasn't thinking straight. He wasn't a monster. He was just a human being who'd survived some horrific situations. Just a guy struggling to keep his chin above the flood of emotions that he'd buried for so long. But then, John was shaken out of his reverie. His son wandered into the room, oblivious to the situation. We were supposed to go out to eat, and I forgot. And he said, hey, Dad, we're still going out to eat. And it just totally derailed me. Literally about 20, 15 minutes of just watching sunset go down, I was about to just be lights out. But that moment had brought him back to reality. And the reality was this. John couldn't numb out his family the way he had numbed out his army buddies. So I just needed to just make sure that uh, I was um, just present. And I just said, you know, um, I had this wild idea of just saying, well, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to devote the rest of my life to helping and serving others. I don't know what that looks like. But being present with his family wasn't as easy as he thought. So John went to the VA clinic in nearby Macon to get help for his PTSD. They said they could get him some therapy in six weeks. He didn't have six days. Many vets don't. Studies have shown that about 15% of service members, about half a million people deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, suffer from PTSD. And PTSD can be deadly. 
Since 2001, well over 100,000 veterans have died by suicide, about 10 times more than the number of American soldiers killed in combat. So John needed to find another form of therapy, something to keep him tethered to this world. He just didn't know what it was yet. John had always wanted to run a restaurant, a barbecue joint, and he wanted it to be the best barbecue restaurant in the South. For that, he would need the best pigs. But then John thought, well, in order to have the best pork, he would probably need to raise the pigs himself on his own farm. So he quickly decided that he was going to become a farmer instead of a pitmaster. Then I said, I don't know nothing about farming. I don't know nothing about any of this kind of stuff, which was a good thing because I said, I'm, I'm willing to learn. There's an army ranger motto, which is sua sponte. It means of their own accord. Do it yourself. John was and always will be a ranger. And so he got to work, building his farm from the ground up. People thought he was crazy, that he wouldn't be able to handle farm life, that he wasn't going to make any money. But he purchased a 20-acre plot of land in Milledgeville, about 30 minutes from Macon. And he and his family moved into the small farmhouse there. The next thing John needed to do was get some pigs. So he bought three massive 500-pound ones and drove over to pick them up with an old war buddy named Chuck. But they found one pig wasn't interested in cooperating. Chuck has this boar's leg holding it, and he's the boar's trying to swing around. We dragged him in, and he's dragging out, and he's squealing, he's screaming, and we're... I mean, it took three of us to drag him in that trailer. Yeah, it was fun. Wrestling pigs was fun, but they also taught John a lesson about family. At that point, he was pretty nervous about being with his own kids. He was afraid he might hurt them. And I'm watching these piglets grow and running around, giving mom hell. <laughs> All of them are like laying on her back, you know, and just like, oh man, you know, I, I had this connection to my own children, right? Their own little ways of doing things. Every time I was around those piglets, I would always think about my kids. And um, I noticed that there became a time where I really wanted to get back to being present with my, with my own children. When the piglets weren't teaching John about parenthood, he was busy figuring out sustainable farming. His rabbits produce manure. The manure contains microbes which attract black soldier flies. Black fly larvae are eaten by John's turkeys, chickens, ducks, and pigs. Plants are grown in aquaponics full of fish that also eat the larvae. And then the plants become feed for the animals. Yeah, it's a beautiful cycle of how all that works. Our main goal is to be stewards of the land, right? It's like healing the earth. Yeah, healing the earth. I never thought in a million years that I would be so integrated in soil and the, the health of our planet. So after 10 years of being a soldier, John was now fostering new life. After he mastered the pig pen, he built a garden full of sweet, organic heirloom tomatoes, cucumbers, and more. He became fascinated with heritage seeds and started cultivating his own strains. I'm growing uh, peas that were stuffed in uh, one of King Tut's tombs that they found, Whoa. archaeologists found. And so they're a purple variety. Oh, how did they taste? Excellent. <laughs> wow. That's why he wanted to take them with him to the afterlife. Fancy farm-to-table chefs were featuring his produce and meat on their menus. Lots of people were being nurtured by John's food. But all of this was nurturing John, too. 
Working on the farm helped his PTSD. It gave him peace, purpose. It made him calmer and so much happier. So John wondered if maybe this life could help other people he knew, all of the veterans in the same boat as him. So my theory is that the farm taps into the same problem solving, being um, hypervigilant, you know, um, sensory overload. That kind of chaos is where we tend to thrive the best. We think clearly. What's chaotic on a farm? Oh, my God. Have you ever been to a farm? (laughs) (laughs) Everything's chaotic. It's a f***ing disaster, man. It's like, you know, (laughs) you got geese screaming. You got pigs breaking out cages. Electric fences down and the sheep are out. Mother Nature decides she wants to rain too much. Don't rain enough. You know, it's like, how do you win? You don't you, you don't win. The biggest thing is don't worry about anything that you don't have control over. That is a hard, hard lesson for vets. And, and, and when you put them in that situation and they come to that realization, it's funny because that transfers over to family and to relationships. There's a lot of things we don't have control over, but there's things that we can do personally to make our lives better. When John went to the VA in crisis, he was told to wait. Veterans who can wait long enough get some sort of long-term counseling or a heavy course of meds. What was missing, John thought, was a short-term fix, something veterans could get access to immediately after a meltdown in order to get back on their feet. So John created a non-scientific form of behavioral treatment he calls agrotherapy. He moved into a place off the farm and invited veterans to sleep in the farmhouse or camp out in RVs. Vets stay for a few days or several weeks where they visit on a regular basis. They volunteer their time in the fields and the barns. And in exchange, they find a sense of community and belonging. You got Troy and you got John, both sergeants in the army. John would most likely be on the John Deere tractor moving uh, piles of manure or Troy is, you know, out in the garden uh, working on an irrigation system that he puts in. Uh, you got Simon, who's active duties, um, and he's there picking weeds or digging holes to put fence in or spreading seeds and uh, or watering or, or doing a number of things. Since 2016, about 1,000 active duty and retired veterans have come to John's farm. When they show up, he quickly puts them to work picking vegetables, plucking eggs, or wrangling pigs. And soon, their outlook starts to change. They describe a newfound sense of purpose and stronger friendships. Soldiers and spouses tell John the farm has saved their marriages and lives. So John decided to name his farm after the guy he considered his good friend in the Army, Kyle Comfort. Finally. This was a way to memorialize the guy who encouraged him, who believed in him, who said he could be a leader. He thought it was perfectly appropriate. Comfort Farms. But there's a twist. You know, Kyle didn't join the Rangers because he wanted a comfortable life, right? He wanted an uncomfortable life. And we realized on Comfort Farms, you only grow in your discomfort. And so we run towards the things that are making us uncomfortable because when we tackle those things and we overcome those things, it's how we grow. John is the perfect person to run all of this because he's a stickler, because he loves teaching people about good soil, and most importantly, because he gets them. Like this one time at a festival he puts on to honor fallen soldiers, John noticed one of the guests sitting off by himself down by the fire pit. 
Despite the festivities, he looked sad. John walked over and asked him what was wrong. He kind of turned away from me a little bit because uh, he was crying. And I said, hey, you know what, dude, it's, it's okay, brother. It's okay, because I, I knew what he was feeling. We, we'd, done a sw- we'd done a sweat lodge, Native American sweat lodge that we do every Saturday, and it kind of opens you up. It kind of makes you feel extremely vulnerable. And one of the things he said was, he said, you know, John, he goes, I've never experienced anything like this in my entire life. What I'm afraid of is that, you know, when I leave here, I don't have this when I go back home to Boston. John did know. Now that there was all of this love and bustle and brotherhood, everything was okay. But he knew that this veteran was afraid of what would happen in the quiet. I spent pretty much the rest of the day talking to him. And uh, we hugged, shook hands, we cried. And, um, and I felt good about him, you know, leaving and just kind of put a, like a realistic, you know, face on what's going to happen and what his job is to do now, which is to go out and give light into the world, you know? To me, that sounds like the opposite of numbness. That sounds like intimacy, vulnerability, connection. All of the things John was afraid he'd lost at war. It sounds like healing. We often think of PTSD as a disability, as something that weakens soldiers when they come back. But look at Comfort Farms. It has grown from one pig pen to an expanding farm slash facility designed to help veterans. Volunteer social workers now triage veterans upon arrival and provide addiction and mental health treatment. The VA now refers veterans there. And John has partnered with the USDA and a couple of local colleges to offer vets a certificate program in sustainable farming. They hold events like a farmer's market and other celebrations that attract 20,000 visitors every year. This wasn't built in spite of John having PTSD. When I tell people, like, are you afraid of veterans with PTSD? Look around you, because this is what PTSD created. I can let it consume me and ruin me, or I can take ownership of it and go ahead and, and do some good stuff. And that good stuff has finally trickled down to the person John struggled to connect with the most when he first came home, his son Titus. Titus is in college now, but he comes home to visit. John recently taught him how to catch a pig, but the farm work is the diversion that allows for a deeper connection. You know, I come back and I want to talk to him about, you know, the things that may have troubled him and or my reaction to, you know, the frog situation and really kind of come back to let him know where my headspace was and things like that. So we talk about all those things. Has he forgiven you? Oh, yeah, he, he knew. He understood. But more importantly, he understood why the value of life meant so much to me. And has the farm, like having the farm and having it there allowed you to have those conversations more easily? Absolutely. It's never easy to escape the fear of war after you come home. Some soldiers seek to comfort themselves with more dissociation, alcohol, drugs, risky behaviors, anything to get you away from those feelings. But John's farm provides something else a safe place to sit with that discomfort. The fear and anxiety swells up, and you embrace it. Then you look up at the blue sky, look around you at a field of beans, at dozens of hands all working together. Today might be the day you die. Or it might be the day that you begin to heal. You've been listening to Home Made by Rocket Mortgage. 
My name is Stephanie Fu. You can reach us at rocketmortgage.com slash homemade. Thanks for listening. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org, number 3030.